computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And have you ever wondered what it takes to prosecute a murderer? Maybe a pedophile, or even tackle some of the most testing and challenging things around Aboriginal or Indigenous affairs. What about these really complex legal cases? How do you navigate that and what about the complexity, the, the trickiness and, and how do you produce a result? Well, introducing Tracy Randall, a long-term court advocate who's a specialist in this space and has been driving and delivering many of these cases across the country and this is a conversation about what it actually takes to actually produce results in this space. And not only that, there's some of the hidden benefits that working in the legal profession help you achieve, including having your office flooded by multiple floods time and time again. It's a fascinating conversation. Let's dive straight in. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here on the show. And one of the key things I think which stands out about your career, not only have you worked with some of the most high-profile cases across the country, but it's also that you've been doing it all from Lismore. And if anyone has watched the news in the last couple of years, Lismore has actually taken a beating when it comes to the environment, the flooding, et cetera, et cetera. So where I'd love to start this conversation is what's it been like running a, a legal practice in a town which has been in the headlines for so many kind of natural disasters recently. What's it what's it been like on the ground for you? Um it's I can only describe it as pretty full on. So um in at the end of February in twenty twenty two, um this was hit by the biggest flood I think Australia has seen. Um I, my my office went under just under 15 metres of water. Um, it's very difficult for people to fathom that, um, that amount of water being in a central business district. It wiped out our entire central business district. Um, Lismore is a flood town, so most businesses are pretty prepared to flood in a major way, maybe every three or four years. But a major way goes, you know, probably a metre, a metre and a half into the bottom story. Um, and this went about just over a metre into our top story. So that was devastating for the town because most businesses, um, as I said, are prepared for flood and we all move our woods up into the, our second stories and, you know, clean out the bottom story. I've done a renovation downstairs in my office that really is floodproof, um, but no one expected the flood to come into the second story. And I can remember we have our comms unit downstairs is attached to the ceiling to keep it above flood water. And I was on a ladder taking out the racks from the comms unit. And I had a couple of farmers helping me and they said, oh, the water's never going to get to that high. You don't need to do that. And I said, well, it's just the moisture really affects it if the water stays in. Well, it went way out of the comms box. Wow. 
So the impact that that's had on the town has been huge. Um, we were cut off um, for quite a while, um, but significantly a number of people stayed in their top stories, um, which has traditionally been the practice so that they can clean up fairly quickly after a flood. So I went through the 2017 flood and I think we turned around and were back operational within three days. In this instance, the entire electrical infrastructure in the town was damaged. So I, I don't think I had electricity. I'm trying to remember. I think it was about five weeks wow. that we didn't have electricity, which makes it really difficult to then clean up because you need electricity yeah. to get high-pressure hoses running and a whole range of things. Um and it was really like Armageddon in the kind of week afterwards because there was so much damage to the town. We didn't have things like petrol, so there were vehicles abandoned by the side of the road where people had just run out of petrol. There was a cow on the roof in the middle of town where people had to work out how they were going to get the cow off the roof. Wow. Um, I don't think people are really prepared for the extent of devastation. Um, luckily, as a criminal lawyer, I am trained to deal with disaster in people's lives, and that's what I do every day. So we have a le levy wall in Lismore, and as soon as I realised that it was going to go over the levy wall, I immediately put someone on a plane to Newcastle for them to collect equipment and drive it back up so they could be here and we would have power and be able to clean immediately. And in doing that, we were one of the first businesses that reopened in Lismore. Within about a week and a half, we were running a makeshift practice wow. from our office in town how do you stay settled in that well i should perhaps it sounds like your legal training has just prepared you for really challenging scenarios like and i can't imagine some of the things that you must deal with so but how do you kind of stay when everyone else is freaking out like because humans tend not to deal well in that context how are you kind of navigating that yourself when there's so much kind of change or Chaos. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's what we do. So I do complex criminal work. Um, so really I'm doing lengthy murder trials, lengthy uh, historical sexual assault trials, some of them arising from the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Abuse. Um so, and they don't occur in Lismore. I'll go to Sydney to do that work. So I'm kind of used to making the best of a situation, I suppose. But, but you know, I deal with clients who are highly anxious and very stressed every day of the week. And um, I, I just, you know, had to learn skills um, around remaining 
kind of stable in that situation. Plus, I had, you know, I have responsibility for 10 staff. I had 10 people looking at me going, what's going to happen? Are we going to have a job? Um, I did a lot of negotiation with um, various politicians who were attending, trying to work out what was needed on the ground. Um, I think I remember saying to the Premier that he was damn lucky this was a community of rule breakers, otherwise there would have been a lot of deaths because Trek people were trapped in the ceilings of their houses and there were very limited resources and so effectively a civilian rescue force was marshalled um, and conducted most of the rescues in this area, cutting people out of roofs and pulling them out before they drowned, basically. Wow. Um, so in turn, it's a very cohesive community, but it's a community that's really struggling now. A lot of people are tired. Yeah. Um, they're doing silly things because they're tired. Um, and it's taking a long time for the town to get back on its feet, basically. Mm. I can imagine. So, um, just from, it's probably, I guess, an interesting segue into like just more law, if we focus on that, coming away from Lisma a little bit. But from your perspective, like, what are some of the misconceptions that people actually have about? more and the legal profession and what you do and what you're like perhaps what are those kind of most common things that you see i think the major misconception is it's about truth and it's generally not necessarily about truth (laughs) or about finding the truth (laughs) wow so i'm a criminal lawyer so um i i do a lot of like complex trial work um I I suppose the dinner party question I get asked all the time is, how can you appear for people when you know they're guilty? That's the big one I get asked all the time. Um, And, you know, I I take the approach that I do a job that is essential in the community for kind of civil order to be maintained and – part of maintaining civil order is to make sure that people get a fair trial. And that means, you know, that everyone gets a fair trial, not just a selective few. And the way I manage that psychologically is that I don't really engage in um, a morality analysis about the person I'm appearing for. I tend to approach things by encouraging people to plead guilty who I think should be pleading guilty. But if they if, if they don't instruct me that way, then they're entitled to a fair trial as everyone is. And those sort of issues aren't as it, it, at the forefront in my mind as most people might think. I used to... I, <laughs> I always had quite a bit of difficulty telling my children, explaining to my children when they were very young <laughs> about what I actually did. So I used to tell them, I help people to uh, I help people to say sorry when they find it difficult. <laughs> 
And they kind of accepted that. So sometimes, you know, people people are very much influenced by the media, which, um, you know, generally takes a very polarised view of, you know, what the law and order debate is. Um, and... Uh, it's quite it's quite funny because I'm often sitting in a trial and watching the media reports that are coming from it, and I quite often wonder whether we've been at the same venue sometimes. And you'll hear that quite often from people who are watching a trial unfold. Um, you know, it's it's not what you see in the media. There are many shades of grey. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I've come across many clients who are just born bad, if I can put it that way. Um, there's complex reasons around why people offend. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine it's uh, it's like the, the really tricky part. I can imagine that morality, that, that also that commitment to a fair trial, that commitment to democracy, all of that. Right. And also, as I understand it, the point of legal trial is to ultimately stop retribution of another kind, whether, you know, an eye for an eye kind of discussion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's complex work. And, um, you know, the, the ish, that issue that's raised with me about, you know, well, only the other day somebody said to me, is there anyone you wouldn't appear for? And it's kind of like, well, no, because everyone's entitled to a fair trial. And as soon as we let go of that concept, then we let go of concepts of being a civil community. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, really, really interesting. So um, a big part of what we like to focus on this podcast, Tracy's around the little things which make a big difference. Um, mm. And when I think about the legal profession, you know, you hear about hundreds of lawyers, you know, <laughs> thousands of lawyers, right? And I often wonder, I wonder what makes a good one. And I, I'd, I'd be really intrigued to know from your perspective, what do you what do you feel like are the little things, you know, the point one percenters that, that make a big difference in, um, in what you do from someone who's exceptional or really, really good to someone who's not? Um, it, it'd have to be communication skills. Oh. Um, I with my, my business is just trying to think about fourteen years old, so it's not an established old school law firm. But um, our business has expanded dramatically. It's predominantly staffed by women. It's all women at the moment, and most of the time it is. We occasionally let a boy slip through the door, but um, and that's quite. I, I think people are quite. They wonder about how my client group, which are predominantly men, right, will cope with that. But um, I, I run quite a different style of practice. I. Sometimes most people who are coming through the door are really stressed about something in their lives, right. um, and we try very much to make clients feel comfortable um, and be really personal about our approach. 
So I probably could have gone to the bar many years ago and became a barrister, but I actually really enjoy client work. And so I've remained as a solicitor. Um, and it's incredibly rewarding work because I get to hear people's deepest secrets, I suppose. Their fears, um, they're incredibly vulnerable when I talk to them. Um, and that approach takes many, many years of practice to be able to manage a client well and obtain the information you need. Um, and I actually have to make sure I don't do that when I go into my personal life. <laughs> but, you know, generally I have 20 minutes to find out everyone, everything about a person and the major issues that are impacting them at that time because often they might be in custody having been arrested by the police. So, so to speak from your communication piece then, so what what is it would you say is the ability to have someone be at ease? Is it to ask the right questions or is it? Well, it's different for every person. There has to be a connection there. I've done a lot of work with First Nations people and I started my career working with Indigenous children who are, you know, incredibly vulnerable. Um, and I think a lot of the skills I have developed have come from that foundation. Right. Um, and you have to establish trust. You have to establish a connection. There has to be rapport for a person to disclose to you their failings, in essence, um, and talk to you on that level. And so it, it takes a long time to be able to do that quickly. And I... In you know my practice, mentor all the lawyers that work under me to develop those skills. Um, but um, yeah, it's I, I suppose you you know it's about being. I talked about not you know moralising about the person I'm appearing for. Clients pick up on that really really quickly. So you really need to. You know, I suppose park that at the door when you go in to see a client, and you know, just understand their predicament and be able to communicate that understanding. And I, I don't know how to explain that in oh, any other way. I can appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I guess it, it's interesting. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is about the impact of technology on your business, right? And I. And I think um, we're seeing a lot about AI recently, and I don't know about your LinkedIn feed, but mine's full of it. And it's um, one thing I was thinking is that there's a part of the legal system which is very kind of mechanical, very um, administration heavy, like setting up a trust. Like, you know, I'm just surprised that we still have to pay money for that every time my lawyer sends me something. So it's, but then there's that, that part which you just talked about, like, AI is a long way away from from that, I would imagine, at this stage. Uh, but I don't know. What do you what do you think in terms of that that communication skill? Do you, do you think that's replicatable? Is it is no. it human to be? It's hard to teach. <laughs> yeah, right. 
it's very hard to teach and um you have to have and it's really hard for young lawyers to learn um because they don't have a lot of worldly experience at that time and i often say to my young lawyers don't watch what i'm doing because i'm shortcutting all the time because i now have a reputation and a range of things that come before me but i had to build all that and that's hard to build so i don't think it can be replaced and quite frankly criminal law is like back in the early 80s in terms of technology <laughs> oh interesting <laughs> so we still use paper we still have paper briefs um I scan mine and turn them into an electronic format. Um, but, you know, for instance, uh, I the New South Wales Police are only just starting to send electronic briefs in complex matters. And when I say complex matters, they're matters that might run to like 30 lever arch volumes of evidence. Wow. Um, they're only just starting to do that. Um, I, I know a trial that I was in got held up for three days because I couldn't access the telephone intercepts on my laptop, and that's because the New South Wales Police were still using Internet Explorer, and that was only like 12 months ago. So that was quite difficult because I could see it working on the police computer and I had the identical thing on my computer, but my web browser was defaulting to Chrome and so it wasn't working with Chrome. Yeah, okay. So it took masterminds to work out <laughs> that that's what the issue was, but we had a trial held up for that period of time. So it... Has criminal law, in at least your domain, has it been shielded somewhat from technological advancement then? It just there's no... It's just not keeping up. So, um, and the funding models are keeping up with the new sort of evidence we are getting. So, um, for instance, I was in a murder trial last year where there was a lot of evidence about web searching on you know by the defendant um and it was a legally aided matter and um the police allocated one officer working full-time for five months analyzing that material and i got nothing so i the funding for legal aid i had to fight to get an electronics expert to analyse what the police had done to see whether, you know, there was other material that would assist the defendant in, you know, two years of web browsing history. And so that's kind of, that's an area that, you know, the, the, we're lagging a long way behind. You know, the forensic, you know, experts that analyse Computers are few and far between and very expensive. Um, I don't think the police themselves are skilled in the sort of computer fraud we're now seeing. Um, and, you know, people are being 
arrested and um, charged with significant frauds where their identity is then used as a shield for the main perpetrator. And, you know, I've been in a matter recently where, um, you know, a kind of Luddite was charged with a significant fraud from her employer and her parents um, and um, we had to do all the investigation into um, holes in the banking security system, in digital telephone systems, um, to come up with an alternative hypothesis other than her guilt. Yep. And that was it was hugely expensive and effectively I ran an alternative investigation that the state would normally pay for. Wow. Yeah. And that was hugely expensive. Um, and, you know, the, the New South Wales police kind of went, well, she's the common feature in both. It must be her. Okay. okay. So I think that's something that's really on the horizon. Um, and, you know, this sort of um, sophistication of those computer frauds that are now occurring are amazing. Um, and our ability to investigate those sort of sophisticated frauds at the local police station is next to zero. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, yeah, there's a huge gap there. Yeah, interesting. I think, I think we see that across across the board. Right? Technology is almost like it's so quick these days. And, like, the emergence of yeah, some of this AI technology, it seems like it's quick. It's been years in the making. And then it's just, even I saw a headline today saying that universities are going back to pen and pencil, also now pen assessments because of the uh, prevalence of AI cheating. And so it's, it's just that it's, it's, I feel like there's a lot of industries which aren't responding or don't know how to respond or <laughs> like. Well, and us as individual consumers don't know how to respond. I mean, you pick up your phone and the amount of personal data that's being collected every time you tap one of those buttons is huge. I mean, in the last trial I had, I could actually track the, the person had a Telstra phone. I could actually track the path they took on a particular day geographically just because they had switched on um, a, a service that Telstra offers where they can wireless in to businesses as they're walking past them. And I didn't know that. Telstra apparently allocate a small proportion of each internet service they install for public use. So I could actually track the path that this person was taking because they kept connecting in to these internet services wirelessly along the path they were taking. So that was kind of blew my mind, really. <laughs> it's like, wow. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, each time we kind of plug in our phone and back up our data, we don't really know where it's been backed up to. Um, and, you know, in the matter I had with, that I was talking about with the Luddite who was charged with fraud, her employer had backed up their iPhone to the business 
computer, which was then hacked, and all her ID was taken. So I don't, and I know there's been a scramble since Optus to add. 2FA to everything, which seems to be slowing everything down at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, it's th- these, these things are pretty easily navigated by, you know, agencies who just spend all their time working out how to get around them. Yeah. Yeah. It's becoming increasingly sophisticated, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah well, okay. Um, changing tax slightly. Uh, yes. back to the business side a little bit, Tracy, and um, we won't. I won't ask you the idols question if you if you don't feel like you've got one that comes to mind. But I was just going to ask in terms of someone who is wanting to set up their own legal practice. You know, it's twenty twenty three. What what would what would be some of the gems, or what would be the perspective you might add to to counselling someone uh, who who has that kind of appetite to to go on their own or or um, yeah, step out from perhaps working for government into their own practice? Um, well, I think setting up processes is really important. Like I deal with, you know, this firm has a high-volume workload um, and we rely very heavily on processes that we've set up so that, you know, that, we're doing something the same way each time. Um, I know that sounds really simple, (laughs) but it means that we can navigate a huge workload pretty easily. Um, So putting a lot of attention into your systems is really important and not just going with whatever everyone else is doing. Um, you, you know, particularly for practice management software, um, there's a leading practice management software business that have cornered the market and the product I think is really poor. And I kind of, uh, took the leap out of that and, um, actually sat down and designed practice management software with an organization that suited a criminal firm. Yep. Um, most of the software packages that are offered for lawyers are about civil litigation and our practice works in a very different way. Um, and that really has meant, I mean, it was, you know, it interrupted the business for a while while we were transitioning, but it's made our job a lot easier. So I think, you know, there's a bit of a tendency to kind of just go for what everyone else is doing without really putting a lot of thought into it. And I think a lot of thought at that setting up stage really saves a lot of time later on. And I have to say, I I mean, I left the Legal Aid Commission to set up practice and very nervously thought, oh my God, what if I get no clients? And then I thought, it's okay, I'll set up all those processes in the time until I get clients. Well, we opened the door and I didn't have any time to really focus on those processes. (laughs) So that would be my one word of advice. The other thing is, is manage staff really well. You know, having good staff that are loyal, that fit your business model is really, really important. 
And just on the management piece, what do you, what do you mean by manage them really well? Well, look after your staff. They're your assets in a legal business. I mean, we don't sell product. We sell our brains, really. <laughs> so you need to make sure you're looking after them and, yeah. um, you know, keeping, you know, particularly in my work environment, the work we do is really, really difficult. So I need to make sure my work environment is really hugely supportive and fun because we deal with such, you know, hardcore stuff. So, yeah. you know, I focus quite a bit of time making sure my team's always okay. Yeah, right. Mm. To bring fun into what you do, I think, would be extraordinary. Dressing, really. I would, um, <laughs> I won't ask about the Christmas, as it, <laughs> the Christmas party. <laughs> um, actually, yes. That's, that's interesting you mentioned that. How do you do it? Like, what does it look like? Is it just bringing... Is it cracking good jokes or is it something? Well, we kind of have a bit of an A&E type humour. <laughs> right, yeah, I imagine that. But uh, it can be quite dark humour. But we just try and, you know, keep it quite light. So, you know, I can't reveal too much. But, you know, we, we just, you know, we kind of will socialise quite a bit with each other. We... Um, you know, I have a really good coffee machine, <laughs> so I make coffee for everyone every morning before we start, and we just check in with, you know, how not in a formal sense, but it's a time to be able to say, you know, and a lot of, you know, my staff are women, so they've got children, and, you know, we, we work out whose kids are sick, whose kids are next going to be sick, what disease is going around childcare centres, you know, that sort of thing. Who's got vomit on their suit before they go to court? You've got foot and mouth, yeah, I'm with you. So. Yeah, so we kind of keep it quite light. And, you know, we also have, all, because we're in a country town, our kids all go to school in town, so they come, you know, we'll have kids in here in the afternoon. and So it's quite a relaxed environment in that way. People might find that quite bizarre because we're a criminal law firm, and we keep that quite distinct. But we—it's quite a relaxed environment, and it has to be that way because we have no control over our work planning for any day. So, unlike most jobs where you might be driving to work, going, "Okay, so today I'm going to tackle." This thing that's been sitting in the corner that I've been ignoring for the past month, we don't get that opportunity. So it's pretty rare that I have, I mean, I try and formulate a work plan, <laughs> but generally, you know, I'm at the mercy of police arresting people. So, you know, I can get in here with the best intentions and get a phone call that turns my entire day upside down. And that happens for my staff as well. So we have to work really closely to be able to cover each other. So in that sense, there's lots of swearing, <laughs> there's lots of venting, but there's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I can imagine. I, think I can imagine if you didn't have that, well, you, you could go insane, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah, the, the weight to it and the... Um, yeah, and it's... 
it's criminal, right? I, there's yeah, it's a big difference from civil proceedings where criminal, there's real ramifications for other than just the company having to pay a fine, you know? And I think that's, um, that must be very tricky to deal with on a, or to navigate just on a regular basis. Well, and, and it's just, we're at the mercy of everyone. So, you know, we've got a client, we might get a call and the client's in custody and we've got to race up to court and then the court's ringing us saying, when are you going to be ready with the person to go into court? And then we've got to ring family and there's a range of things that go on. So we have to work really tightly as a team to get through that. And then someone has to cover the workload for the person who's been called out to court. So it's constantly a fluid working environment and it doesn't suit some people. Organised chaos, literally. Organised chaos, yes. It's, it's right. Which is why we dealt with the flat so well. Yeah, just another day in the office. All <laughs> <laughs> the tinny, perhaps. So, um, all right, well, I think I've taken up a lot of your time, Tracy, so I'm incredibly grateful. Um, I just wanted to, to finalise, is there anything else that, I should have asked you that you wanted me to ask you. Um, the only thing is that I, even though I do very complex criminal work, I also do a bit of pro bono work. Oh. And our the, our favourite pro bono event is we give legal advice at Spender in the Grass. Right. And we do that each year. It started off as a way for me to keep an eye on my adolescent children while they were at the festival. I thought it was just a free ticket you're after. But. <laughs> but we also, as a result, have a fiberglass Labrador that sits in our waiting room when he's off duty because surprisingly when we um, start, we were the first law firm in Australia to offer legal advice on site at a music festival. It's now being replicated in most music festivals, um, we we just saw a need for that in our local area because Blender is the biggest music festival in Australia and we attract people from all over Australia and internationally. Um, and it, it was quite amazing because all of the festival goers really loved us being there and so we were requested to return and it's just now become an annual thing. But I was quite surprised that a lot of people had come up and said, why do you need a lawyer at a music festival? And so we actually got ourselves a fake sniffer dog and kitted him out and he's now quite a photo opportunity at Splendor in the Grass. <laughs> in what sense, Josie? What do you mean by... Uh... Well, people want to come and have their photo taken with a sniffer dog. Oh, I love it. Um, and we've very nicely had the local community in Nimbin donate a dog jacket for him which says, not police, but polite. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very uh, Nimbin-appropriate jacket, I think. And so we got approached by all these music festivals around Australia to come wow. up, do the same service at their music festival. And I actually had to say, actually, we're actually a real loss. <laughs> yeah, we actually don't do that. We actually have done jobs. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So um, that's so amazing. And some of the stories which we haven't touched on here, but just, yeah, some of the kind of the real headline 
cases that you've worked on in terms of representing really vulnerable people. I, I think it's, um, yeah, to keep such humility and lightheartedness when dealing with serious, serious issues, Tracy, I really admire that of you. And, and to also <laughs> the longevity in it as well. <laughs> I'd like to, you could, might be able to do it for a year and, and to not get burnt out by it as you did in Sydney. Um, mm. that's really, do you mind if I ask about that just, just briefly to, to wind yeah. up, how do you, how have you found you, you don't do that or because the nature of being reactive and at the beck and call of the police, as it were, um, I think as I've, I, look, quite frankly, burning out when I was really young was a really good thing to happen. Um, because you can imagine for people who don't live in New South Wales, Redfern in the early 90s was probably a flashpoint for race relations in Australia. I was very lucky. I worked with some amazing Aboriginal leaders who established the Tent Embassy in Canberra. So, you know, it was an amazing opportunity for me to work with, you know, the forerunners of, you know, what we are now seeing, which is an Indigenous voice to Parliament and the debate around that. Um, but it was a tough time. I mean, I when I worked in Redfern, um, you know, I was a young lawyer on the front line when the Redfern riot broke out and, you know, there were Molotov cocktails being thrown and riot police and, you know, it, it, it was a really full-on time. And for me, as a young lawyer, it really opened my eyes. I worked in Redfern when David Gundy was shot mistakenly by the police and killed. Um, it was just a case of mistaken identity for oh. him. I've actually appeared for a an, a man up here who was um, a young um, Aboriginal boy at the local preschool in Redfern who family moved out of Redfern and moved up here because of that event, um, because his father had dreadlocks and David Gundy had dreadlocks and there was a mistaken identity and the family just packed up and moved. So, you know, it, I saw a lot of vulnerability, but I also saw, you know, a lot of passion from, um, you know, what were young leaders then. I also got had an amazing opportunity to see Paul Keating's speech in Redfern Park. I saw Bangar, the Bangara Dance Company as, you know, a not-for-profit <laughs> putting on dances at local meetings and they're now an international, you know, company that I took my daughter to see at the Opera House and she was blown away last year. So... You know, huge opportunity, but um, what I learned in that time was that, you know, you can't just throw yourself wholeheartedly into it. And it's pretty hard not to when you're faced with these lovely Indigenous kids yeah. who've had a really tough life. Mm. But I worked out that if 
I was to have longevity, I had to be very careful about maintaining my mental health and, you know, keeping myself healthy and keeping, you know, things in perspective and keeping our reserve, I suppose, to be able to have for my own personal health. And so I've maintained that. Well, <laughs> which is much easier said than done, I think. It is. <laughs> you know, social media. Yeah, well, get out and use free up all this time. I can totally appreciate that. So, um, well, look, Tracy, on yeah, on behalf of the podcast, I want to say thank you so much for you know, sparing some time with us. Uh, it just sounds like you're doing incredible work. And um, where, if I can ask, where's the best people? Uh, where's the best place for people to find you online if they wanted to reach out for for some matter? Uh, probably through our website, which is www.randalllegal.com.au. Um, as I said, we I don't have a social media profile. I don't have one for a reason because I'd like to put my energies into working face-to-face with people, which I think is really important. Cool. Makes sense. Okay. Well, we'll make sure that's linked in the description as well. And um, But, yeah, thank you, Tracy. We really, really appreciate it. No problems. Lovely to talk to you.